Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. This is Scott Pingle from SNM2, and you're listening to Metal Up Your Podcast. Welcome to Melt Your Podcast. I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. This is episode 331. We're going to continue on with our, our AMA touring edition coverage, if you want to call it that. We got such a uh, huge uh, response to the AMA thing uh, when we were in Phoenix. We couldn't get through them all. We did the patrons first. Now we're going to, you know, I, I pulled all these over from all of our social media accounts. So we've got a little over around 25 questions and stuff like that. They'll have to do with touring. But uh, we're going to get some news, and uh, also we're home for a couple of days, which has been a nice little break from the tour, but uh, Clint's in his new house, looking good over there. How are you feeling, bud? Well, I was just going to remind the audience, or tell the audience, rather, that because uh, I know they're probably groaning like, oh my God, Clint's going to bitch about touring for another hour. Here's what happened the last two days. I hung out in my house with my family. Mm-hmm. So I'm feeling a lot better. Feeling good, looking good. So now we can actually have a fun episode about touring because I don't feel like I'm trapped in a never-ending nightmare. <laughs> so not that the tour was bad. It's just that it was just adding up, dude. By the time we were in Phoenix, I was fried, and there was still like two weeks left or whatever. Yeah, I exactly. Think. I can't even remember. I think it was like, I don't know, a week and a half ago. It doesn't really matter at this point. It doesn't matter. I don't want to bore everybody. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I am home. I've spent the last couple of days on my family. Uh, yesterday, I went and had lunch with my daughter at her school. And then we rounded off the evening playing basketball in my driveway together. Oh, man. Sounds like a dream. It's just heaven on earth over here. So I'm feeling good. Thank you again to Michael Grosvenor and his buddy over at Glass Houses for filling in last week. Yeah, thank you guys. Man, that tour, it was harder to do this on the road than it's ever been. So It really was. And, and like the last few days, we, uh, the venues we were playing, it was like one of them in Austin we played two nights at. It was literally like a wooden stage on a pile of dirt. Show was fun. Good crowds, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the dressing room sitch. Might as well be as big as like my bathroom. One and for everybody. So there was like nowhere for us to record. It's rare that that happens, but Clint's right. It was a little harder on this on this tour to uh, get episodes out in a and find a space just to you know do this and, and and feel comfortable and creative and stuff like that. But um, one thing to note too with um you know since we're talking about touring and stuff in this is Clint mentioned you mentioned you know being home even just for these three days. It's like such a good recharge. It's it's kind of mind blowing how quickly. You get home, you hang out with your loved ones, spend some time not even thinking about what's happening on the road, and it's just like your battery level just goes up so fast. Yeah, and I can tell you why if you're curious why. Tell us. Because what we do out there isn't our real life. Our real life is at our home. Yes. And what we do when we're out there is we're working. Most people work. You have to work. We're locked into this system where everyone... I was thinking about the other day. This was, I was driving over to school, and I was like, you know, everyone just has to get up and work their whole goddamn lives. Yeah. We could have all just decided to just eat eat off the land and be together, but of course that didn't work out. And uh, so we all just work forever, and you spend your whole life working, and you so that you can have a life, right? So our life is at home. 
Yeah, exactly. Now I don't know. I don't know if you agree with that philosophically. Cause I, I know do. You like being out there more than me, but when I come home, I recharge quickly because home is where I belong. Yes, exactly. Home is what I'm doing. That's why I go out there is so that I can have a home. Yes, exactly. I do the same. Yeah, I mean, every every musician or touring personnel is different in as far as like when they hit that that burnt out point. You know, for me, it's a little bit later. I love being on the road, but I, I it still hits me too. You know, but same thing. Like being home these last whatever almost almost you know three days it's just been like gosh it's like it's been so nice even just sitting on the couch just watching a movie with my wife is just like recharges the battery so fast oh you're so romantic it's so nice <laughs> all right well look here we're going to get to the amas i'm in a much better mood so we're hopefully going to have a better time at least i'm going to but first we're going to read some news there's a lot of metallica news you know this band metallica we used to do a podcast about i remember them yeah all right well there's some news all right there's a new album coming out they dropped a new song we had this pass over that song but we're just going to save that for the record i have a lot of thoughts about it i think it's fucking awesome by the way me too i know the complaining uh patrols out there um and speaking of that the first order of news metallica's lars ulrich by the way i want to give a shout out to blabbermouth this is from blabbermouth metallica's lars ulrich admits he reads online comments so he's talking about when they released lux eterna he was like after you put out if you haven't put out anything in five six years you have to go check it out and he defies any band to admit that they don't do the same. He says, if you decide to go down the into the comment sections, at least for me, you have to prepare yourself for not taking any of it overly personally. You have to kind of remove yourself from it. But I'd like to challenge anybody in the band to say they don't look at comments. He says, I mean, I'm not sitting up until four o'clock in the morning scrolling through everyone. But when you haven't put out any music in five or six years, you dump something like Lux Eternal on an unsuspecting world. You're going to want to see what the feedback is. It made me sad to read this because I read all the comments, too, but I'm not these knuckleheads. Mm -hmm. And uh, the comments aren't great. And they really mostly aren't great about Lars and about the drums. Yeah. Yeah, they are. It's really sad. So it makes me sad. But, you know, like being professional touring musicians, which, by the way, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Hey, hello. We're an all Metallica podcast. Hi. Yeah, we are professional touring musicians. You know, you read these comments and someone like you or I immediately, I'm like, this guy's an idiot. This guy's a dumbass. Mm-hmm. You got guys on there saying the Tom's the left Tom is not EQ'd properly. <laughs> and you're like, dude, you do not know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And then someone's going, you know, it's not the Tom, it's the hi-hat. The hi-hat's really loud. And then the guys, then six other nerds go, I agree, it is a hi-hat. And then below that, I go, you know, it's not the hi-hat, it's the kick drums, too thumpy. It's too much. And so by the time you read 15 comments, they've blamed every individual piece of the drums. Mm-hmm. I've seen people call for Greg Fiddleman to be fired. Countdown to just being disappointed by these nerds. So, Well, and when you're a band that big, you know, take a band like Metallica or U2 or Coldplay or whoever, like... You're never going to please everybody, and it's never going to happen. Even if, even, let's say you collectively gather all these knuckleheads that complain about the drums and stuff like that. Let's say you make a record that pleases all of them. Well, then there's this other group over here that's, well, now the they're, they're going too old school, and that's too, that's too thrashy, but it's not master, you know, it's just like, the, you know, thankfully we have a band like Metallica that believe in themselves, they're proud of what they do, they put it out unabashedly and say, this is what we did, we're proud of it, take it or leave it. Well, all they can do is what they did. Yeah. I mean, if you want to get spiritual about it, like all they can do is make the records that hover around them. And the, James can only write the songs he's capable. Maynard just did an interview with uh, Steve-O and uh, Countdown to me talking about Tool. And <laughs> he was talking about how like, he's like, look, we're not going to do an entire set of our old shit. Not because we don't like it, because I physically can't do it. Yeah. I cannot sing 90 minutes worth of what I wrote when I was 22 years old. Agreed. And by the way, their new album, 
is probably the most listened album for me on the road. Like that album is one of the best sounding albums I've ever heard and some of the best songwriting they've ever done. So, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's different than when he was screaming his little dick off when he was 22. It's just, it's just different. They yeah. can only do what they are capable of now. And look, I'm not being a sick fan about Metallica. If the album sucked, I might not even be able to continue this podcast. Right. But it doesn't. I think it's awesome. I yeah. loved Hardwired. It definitely sounds like Hardwired. I, that's another thing people are bummed about. But man, reinventing yourself at 60, that's hard, dude. It's really hard. And on, on top of that, like I know that Metallica sonically has kind of changed on each record, each era of the band, whatever. Kind of, yeah. You know, but like maybe maybe more in the 80s. But like at this point, like Hardwired sounds fucking awesome. 72 seasons so far sounds awesome. Like just because sonically it sounds like hardware, that does not bother me at all. Well, yeah, because then you got the people saying, you know, I really wish they had tried something different. It's like, man, I don't know. It did make me also think of to harken all the way back to my beloved load and reload days. If this is your first episode somehow, I love load and reload. <laughs> news, flat breaking news. Talk about a news alert. Someone stop the press. But um, I, there's a you can find it on YouTube. It's a really small clip. I, I want to find it and just like download the audio. And it's James. He's outside. It looks cold. He looks a little tired. And yeah. he's doing like what maybe is his 150th press interview of the day. <laughs> I'm sure we should have loved. About like load and reload. Yeah. It's that, it's that era. They're promoting fuel or something. And it's one of the journalists astutely is like, they ask it in a cool way where they're like, you know, this sounds pretty different than even the Black Album. You know, and the Black Album was pretty different for all of your 80s fans, trues or whatever. And they're like, what do you think about the fans kind of negatively responding? And this is all the way in 96, 97. And James is like, he's just real cool about it. He's like, you know, this is where we're going creatively as artists. And I hope people can come with us. I want all of the Metallica family there. Mm -hmm. He's like, but if they can't, that's fine, too. Yeah. And he's not like, fuck them. He's not like defensive about it. He's just like. Look, I'm writing the songs that I want to write and that I can write. Yeah. And you know, you know, it's like writing songs like you can only really do what you can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That sounds dumb, but it's actually pretty meaningful. Oh, it's very true. They they, they can't be Kill 'Em All Metallica. They can't be any other era of Metallica that we all love. Yeah. Except the one they're in now. I mean, I think it would be incredibly sad in their career if they if they legitimately tried to recreate ride the lightning or something like that like let's It'd be boring as hell it really would it, uh, to me that would be like a bigger sellout move than all these trues are saying the black album is or whatever record they want to point to well, right i think the only time they've really i think they've done two things i think with saint anger there was some sort of talk or philosophy about getting back to thrash now that just isn't what it became mm-hmm. like i remember one time bob Schneider has this really great song called Montgomery and it's on this album called King Kong. And honestly, I play a fucking bitching solo on it. It's one uh-huh. of the best recorded solos I've ever played. Hell yeah. Um, but the reason I'm talking about that song is when Bob showed me that song, it was just, it was a song game song. Yeah. He goes, you know what I was really trying to do? He's like, in fact, I'm afraid I ripped it off. He says, like, I wanted to write fucking come pick me up by Ryan Adams. And I was like, Oh, interesting. Cause I'm a huge Ryan Adams fan. He only likes that one song by Ryan. He can't stand Ryan Adams. Yeah. And he goes, you know, I was worried when I wrote Montgomery because it was I was worried it was too much of a ripoff of Come Pick Me Up. Dude, they do not sound anything alike. <laughs> but in his mind, they do, right? Just in his mind, that's what he was doing. Yeah. Lyrically, they have nothing in common. Musically, nothing in common. Right. Like on his last album, when I was playing some stuff, we did sessions through Skype. And he kept referencing Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which is a really insane, probably my favorite Pink Floyd song. Sure, yeah. 
for this song that doesn't sound anything like like <laughs> right. what we ended up it's just like in his head it was just like a spiritual um connection you know what i mean yeah yeah for sure i've been there so they're like yeah we're gonna get back to our thrash roots that is not what happened on saint anger <laughs> so i think so i think that happened it's like their their own kind of dumb naivete got in their way or something and then i do think death magnetic was like a callback to justice era stuff yeah but even it is its own identity. It is, yeah. Actually, speaking of Death Magnetic, we got some news. Andrew Sheps, who mixed Death Magnetic, which was beset with the loudness war issues, as we all remember, mm -hmm. he just did a really, ex he's a really famous mixer, by the way, everybody. Like, he does everything. Adele, Lana Del Rey, Jay-Z, anything huge this guy did. He Chili Peppers. Yeah. He's got a new interview up with musicradar.com. And he gets asked about this, all right? So I want to mention this uh, Metallica stuff. He says, there's so much water passed... This is the interviewer. There's uh, so much water passed under the bridge since the loudness war and the whole compression thing. Where is that at these days? Is it a conversation people got bored of? Are engineers not using those techniques anymore? What happened? And this is Andrew responding. He says, I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I was the poster child for loud because of Death Magnetic. He says, everyone hated that Metallica record that was, quote unquote, the loudest thing. He says, my line is that the loudness war is over because I won. He said, that's it. That was the record that did it, which is true. That was the record where everyone was like, enough is enough. Yeah, very true. I think, I mean, yeah, digital clipping like crazy and whatnot. He says, I think in pop radio, there really was a loudness war. You had to be loud, but radio stations compressed the crap out of everything. Blah, blah. Then he goes into some details. The interviewer says, how does a band like Metallica go about building that enormous, huge block of sound? Ultimately, there are a few guitars and bass and drums. Are you tracking on tracking on tracking? What's the process? I thought this was a great answer. He says, well, Greg Fiddleman recorded that, but no, there actually are not a ton of guitars. I think sometimes people forget that everybody in Metallica is really, really good at what they do. He says, I mean, James's rhythm parts are insane. His right hand looks like it's not even moving, and it's one of the most aggressive, precise things you've ever heard in your life. He says, so two of those, that's a big machine. And then this is what I thought was interesting. He says, if you put more guitars on there, it would actually end up getting smaller because they would just start collapsing together. Mm -hmm. So it really is just the band. And then he says, just like the Chili Peppers, which I thought that was interesting because Chili Peppers are very powerful, too. Yeah. Like, really powerful. And they only have one guitar player, and a lot of it's kind of plinkety-plink shit. Yeah, and there's not, I mean, I was listening to a Chili Peppers record on our flight home from Austin the other day, and there's plenty of songs where Frashante goes into a solo, no rhythm guitar, just just Chad, Flea, and John, and that's it. Yeah. And it still sounds big. Yeah. I mean, my beloved, you know, rest in peace, Pantera, same deal. They they rarely even double tracked rhythms over solos. Yeah, it was pretty wild, man. I mean, just and, because they knew it had to live in the world live with just Rex holding it down while yes, Dime went nuts. You know? Exactly. Yeah, and, and you know, and that you know, the details of that engineering process. Maybe that's a better question for Paul. But I mean, I think that dude is right. You know, the more you add, it really just starts to blend together and and can become thinner. Like it doesn't it doesn't allow those initial two left and right rhythm tracks to breathe and to expand a bit. Yeah, and they're just already powerful. All right, a few more things in the news, which I know you've got a couple of items also. All right, this is Metallica's Philanthropic Foundation, All Within My Hands, announced Monday, April 3rd. It will be giving $150,000 split between three separate organizations to provide assistance and relief to areas affected by severe weather, which is nice. That's always a nice thing. That's I mean, just a nice thing. I won't go into details, but just a nice reminder that the All Within My Hands Foundation is still out there kicking ass, alleviating suffering, making me proud as ever to be a fan. Oh, yeah. Here's an exciting thing. Metallica's James Hetfield announces a new book about his guitars. The front man shares the emotional and technical elements of the chosen tools that have shaped his singular musical journey. Awesome. I'm excited to see that. I'm sure a publicist didn't write that sentence. <laughs> of course. 
<laughs> I wonder if he used our episode for research because we've covered his gear thoroughly. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know what? I can't remember all the guitars I have. Let me go uh, hit up Ethan and Clint and see what they talked about. The 400-page coffee table book called Messengers, The Guitars of James Hetfield, which that's a little that's a little intense for me. Mm-hmm. The guitars have messages. One message simply said, cyanide. <laughs> Another message said, all nightmare long. Another one brought a message from the land of Goshen. One might look at this and say, is it but wood and steel? And I would say, yes, it is. But furthermore, it also is a messenger. The snake bite did not come from an actual serpent, but it brought the message of the day that never comes. This one had a message indeed. This one's message was darkness imprisoning me. All that I see, absolute horrors. And there is just one, but only one, and this message was simply, eat fuck. (laughs) (laughs) This one's message was more beer. (laughs) All right, so it's called Messengers, which that's very on brand for James. He's a spiritual guy. He is, It details the frontman's entire collection of over 40-plus guitars. I would have thought it was more than 40. I'd be shocked if there was not more than 40. Or maybe maybe these are all the guitars that anyone he's ever played on stage or something. I, this is probably the 40 big ones. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah. this is going to be the eat fuck, the more beer. This totally. is going to be Uncle Milty, the snake bites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carl, all that stuff. He's got to exactly. have more than 40 guitars. Yeah, I, I, w- I would, honest, honest, this is an honest guess, and I don't have insider information on this. I'm going to guess he probably actually owns probably 200 guitars. Yeah, that would be my guess too, around 200. Same with Kirk. Oh, big time. Yeah. Revealing the story and significance of each guitar within his life and career. This is going to be a fun book, dude. Oh, yeah. According to the book's description, Hetfield shares the emotional technical elements of the chosen tools that have shaped his singular musical journey, including exotic instruments, vintage Gibsons, and custom one-offs. He also reveals many studio secrets, ooh, ooh. including key amplifiers and gear that sculpt his tone and create a sound. Hell, yeah. I do love the cover, too. The cover is this great... It actually looks like Kirk might have had something to do with this cover because it's basically... Like a 50s horror movie, alien movie, H.G. Yeah. Wells. Flying V is kind of like the uh, like the antenna, like trans- transmitting something. Yeah, it's very 50s. Very much. It, it, it reminds me of if someone were to narrate that, they would say, they would say it like this. Well, like the, new, the new book by James Hetfield is called Messengers, you see. Right, exactly. It would either be that or be like, yeah, um, I don't know if I could do Rod Serling. Let me try to read that singular <laughs> shit again. Hetfield shares the emotional... I can't even do it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Go with us now into the Twilight Zone. You could do your uh, radio voice or whatever for that. Oh, the uh, rated R voice? Yeah. <laughs> the new book by James Hetfield. Messengers. <laughs> out now. Rated PG-13. <laughs> the description goes on to add, each featured guitar is accompanied by lush museum-quality portraits by acclaimed photographer Scott Williamson, exhibiting intimate details one can only see if holding it in their own hands alongside Hetfield's deeply personal reminiscence. Set for release October 17th via Simon & Schuster. That's a big publisher. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, there we go. That's exciting. Boom. A few more items in the news. We're just burning through some news, dude. I mean, shoot. Should we have a little little ticker across the bottom of the screen for everybody? I mean, maybe so. Brit Beat. This is from Variety. Metallica brings Download Festival their first ever sellout. That makes me proud. Hell yeah. Now, I guess they were selling tickets at a decent clip, but when they announced Metallica was doing these two nights of no repeats... The tickets went fast, 90000 You know what the promoter was probably thinking? I can feel it. Yeah. I can feel it. <laughs> feel that green. Oh, yeah. Feel them dollars. All right, let's move moving right along. Metallica's Kirk Hammett launches signature 1979 Flying V guitar with Gibson, which is exciting. I'm actually going to go see Jordan today. 
Oh, cool. Um, maybe I'll see if she can give me one of these. Yeah, there's only 200 of them made, so. <laughs> another day, another Gibson signature guitar. Uh, let me give a shout out to this website. This is Kshi95. I'm sure they're listening. After launching the 59 Les Paul standard, which he also did that, by the way, yeah. based on his beloved Greeny guitar last week, the Metallica Shredder is now putting out a recreation of his 1979 Gibson Flying V. Only 200 were made. Each will set you back 15000 fucking dollars. Well, that's it. A relative bargain compared to the $20,000 Les Paul. <laughs> the bargain? Okay. <laughs> Let's see. And that's pretty much it on that. I mean, here's the, what's crazy. She told me, uh, Jordan told me about the Greenies. They made 50 of them. Yeah. And I said, listen, dude, do you do you guys sell those? Because I the ones that they only did 50 of, they sold, what were those, like 50 grand or something? They're crazy expensive, yeah. And she was like, yeah. She was like, we really do sell all of them. Like, it really does economically make sense for everybody yeah. involved. And those are just collector, like like rich, yeah. super rich collectors, doctors, lawyers, what have you. Joe Badamasa, for all I know. I mean, big collector guy. Maybe you know, maybe Kirk and James just bought them all. You know what I wish they did, though? I think we've talked about this. Which, by the way, this is the fruition of... Remember the new... This was news like two years ago that he had he'd been doing like four prototypes with Gibson. Remember he did that interview with that dude, that bald dude with glasses? Yeah. It's interesting that like it's kind of taken this long to really get going. Yeah, for sure. And um, I know Jerry Cantrell's doing a signature thing. Adam Jones has got a cool guitar. I just wish these guys would make cheap versions for kids. Yeah, make like I mean, I guess that maybe they could eventually do like the black seventy nine black flying V, like an Epiphone version or something for exactly. kids to afford. Like, or make a make a Epiphone Greeny. It doesn't have to be Relic and all that stuff, but you know, just call it like the Epi Greeny or something. I don't know. I'm sure that they, it has cross their minds it's, um, the machinations of the business of this are what they are but i do wish they would just remember that like kids love this music too and mm -hmm. and the, the whole point is to make music accessible to kids yeah exactly i mean shit i'd buy an epiphone kirk hammett v why not well just imagine if you're 13 and they're your favorite band and you want you know what i mean like exactly i remember i remember when i was a kid there was a cheap version of the ace fraley like three pickup les paul there was an Epiphone version. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think if there were any other like cheaper signatures. I don't know. They're marketing it to. They're marketing it really, I guess, to most Metallica fans, which are older, more established people. Right. Yeah. But I mean, God, even even thinking about like dropping fifteen thousand dollars on a guitar is just like. I mean, I'm sure the appreciation will will increase pretty quickly. I would imagine. I'm investing. It's an investment. It's an yeah. investment. Yeah. Hey, hey, honey. Um, I know it's fifteen grand. Uh, but imagine in 10 years, it'll be worth like 17. <laughs> it'll pay for Junior's college. That's right. It'll put him to school. All right. My last bit of news before I hand it over to you is uh, James did basically like these quick little unboxings of the vinyl, the CD, and the cassette tape of 72 Seasons. A bunch of internet sleuths noticed that when he pulled the CD out, it revealed the track lengths of all the songs mm -hmm. and we have an 11 minute and 10 second song in Emirata, the last song on the album which i yeah. believe would be the longest metallica song yes correct after what puppets and to live is to die. uh suicide and redemption i think is the longest one suicide and redemption yeah. um i think rebel of babylon's in the top five too yeah it's pretty interesting so this is their let's see the total runtime is 77 minutes average song length six minutes 43 seconds damn i think there's only one song that's like in the three minute category looks eternos 322 okay the next shortest is too far gone at 434 then we get screaming suicide at 530 crown of barbed wire 549 oh room of mirrors is 534 so yeah i mean we'll see i'm pretty encouraged by the the new title track 72 seasons mm -hmm. yeah. seven minutes 39 seconds pretty fucking awesome pretty fucking rad yeah I, I listened to it in the car a couple times yesterday just like damn like this is 
this is kick-ass, you know? <laughs> um, this is from Loudwire. Including Lulu, the divisive collaborative 2011 album with Lou Reed, 72 Seasons will be the fourth longest Metallica album. Excluding Lulu, the record's length is toppled only by Reload and Hardwired. It's just 15 seconds short of Hardwire's runtime. Wow, okay. Who's counting at that point? So we got a lot of material coming up. I'm excited. All right, you have a few other items of news? A couple things here. Um, apparently, Mr. Jamie James Hetfield Jr. Sr. Esquire III has a new lady friend. He found love. Ooh. Congrats, James. I, yeah, I saw a couple people posted. Maybe it was from a wedding or something. I don't know. Some people on Discord posted all these really nice photos of James. Looking good, looking healthy. Looking happy. Looking fit, looking very happy, exactly. And then there was another photo of him and a lady friend. I know. And here, and you know what? Here's the thing. Here's what I can tell you guys about divorce, because I've actually done it. You have. No one who's happy gets divorced. Now, you may have someone who didn't see it coming. You may have someone like James say, hey, good morning. I would like a divorce. And that person may go, what? Yeah. Huh? But if your partner wants a divorce, things weren't good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something's not right. So either both parties kind of, my guess is they got their kids grown and then they kind of came up for air and went, you want to keep doing this? And I, I'm guessing one, at least one of them obviously was like, no. Yeah. That happens in life. People right. break up. You, you go through a journey. You raise up some kids. You do a job well done. His kids seem happy and cool. Mm-hmm. And then uh, if you don't still want to rock it with this partner, then you split up. And what I like about the picture is, and I'm sure I hope Francesca's found, finding finding love out there, too. Of course. I'm sure she is. But what I like about it is, is if a couple really has decided to split, then there's nothing but good times ahead. Mm-hmm. For sure. Because you're going to fall in love. You're going to meet somebody. You're going to start a new journey. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and you know, none of us are getting any younger. And James, you know, he's 59 years old. I mean, yeah. he's, he's and he... I'm, clearly he doesn't want to be alone you know kids are out of the house they're all making their own careers and lives and bands and tours and stuff and you know he found someone you know that he clearly fell for i'd like to imagine that she has kids and then she went to go like break the news to her kids like hey guys so i want you to meet your new dad mom has a new boyfriend um he (laughs) he he plays in a band he's in a band they're like oh my god what a loser god mom seriously i what's his what's it great what's his band called mom well it's called metallica sorry what like what? <laughs> like, mom, are you fucking James Hetfield? Mom, we approve. We don't even care which member it is. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, you know, she looks like she's like older too, and you know, uh, I'm excited for him. Like, yeah. I, he, Ethan and I talked about this right before we recorded. We don't really want to talk about James's like personal relationships, but we do do a Metallica podcast, and it's news. That's yeah. all we're going to say about it. I'm happy for him. I hope it all works out. That's all I care about at the end of the day. Like, James looks happy in these photos that I saw online. Wonderful. I'm stoked for him. And I hope the same for his ex-wife, too. I mean, like, you know, she she did a good job. She hung in there with him. It's hard to find an interview with him when he talks about real shit where he does not praise her mm-hmm. as I mean, he's he's credited her for, quote unquote, saving his life. Yeah, he said it at his in, uh, induction speech at the Rock and Hall of Fame, too. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, she seems like an amazing woman who really obviously held his family together and maybe even held him and maybe even the band together. And they may even ha- they maybe even still have a cordial relationship. Who knows? I hope so. You know, yeah. I hope so, too. You know, I know the kids are all grown up. but still I mean, that's a lot of history together. You know, I know my ex-wife and I, we don't we don't talk. We're not really friends, but we have a lot of mutual friends still back in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. She still lives in the same house, our first house that we bought. Yeah. And dude, she's re- remarried with a kiddo successful having a good time yeah i'm obviously having fun with my wife and daughter sure uh living all, in nashville it's all good in the world with you and you know these things happen for a reason so all right there we go um what else we got uh last bit of news is that rob did a so what interview with uh stefan shirazi oh stefan friend of the show I'll stay a great friend of the show of course great friend of the show 
occasionally a text buddy of mine. Well, hell yeah, man. Uh, he, he always, you know, always conducts great interviews with on, with so what. Yeah, he's amazing. I pulled a couple little excerpts out that I thought was really cool. One being that it kind of seems like Ro- Rob kickstarted the writing and creative process for seventy two seasons. So he says uh, more than anything, it was. Oh, so he's he's referencing after Black in twenty twenty, they were they were going to work on a day that never comes acoustic. And they okay. and they and apparently Lars threw the ball on Rob's court and said, "Hey, can you come up with something to get it going?" And Rob basically didn't do that and came up with something completely original. Sent it over is like, "Hey, here's another idea just for fun." Rob's kind of response because Lars was kind of like, "What is this?" and stuff like that. So Rob is, Rob says more than anything it was intended to make a point, which was, "Fuck it, let's be creative, let's concentrate on new ideas, new music, a new record." Amen. And then it says Lars did call me back at one point. I don't know how long after he said. But then Lars basically responded at some point to, to Rob over the phone and said, you know what, I'm going to take a page from your book. Let's start working on new music. He may not say he remembers that, but I remember it clear as day. From that point on, I think the path we chose was to create our own music and start, work, start thinking about a new record, which is pretty cool. Here's the deal. A band that big, it's got to be scary for them to actually decide to start making a new thing because here's what that means for them. It means an entire machine is going to start lurching into motion. Mm-hmm. They're going to build a three-year tour around it. Yeah, they're going to employ hundreds of people. Metallica is like a tr- small traveling economy. Yes. Not to mention, these guys are legitimately, at the end of the day, and first and foremost, artists. Mm-hmm. So, you you know, it's like to sit down to write a song. You're like, God, I just hope it's good. Yes. Every songwriter that I've ever loved, including Mr. Bobby Zimmerman and Mr. David J. Matthews, have said the same thing. Tom Petty said this. They say every time they write a good song, they think it might be the last one mm-hmm. because it can be such a mysterious process. You don't we don't really know. I mean, I, I could write down for you what happens when I write a song, but the magic around it, I don't really know what happens. Right. Totally. And I don't know why sometimes when I sit down and do it, it's good. And sometimes when I sit down and do it, it sucks. Mm-hmm. I just don't have to keep doing it. So for my, for Rob, because here's the thing, man. It's easy to just sit around and reimagine your good songs. Yeah, for sure. And And honestly... I prefer all the originals except for maybe the second reimagining of all within my hands because it sounds like load. Yeah. But I'm kind of tired. Like they did it with Disposable Heroes. They did it with Blacken. They did it with Creeping Death. They did it with all within my hands. Mm-hmm. They were going to do it with The Day That Never Comes. God damn. All right. I'm glad Rob was like, you know what, dude? Let's start doing something creative. Yeah. I love that he kind of put his foot down in a, in a, in a, in a way by sending that, <clears throat> that original idea. And he even said in the interview, he's like, it's not on the record. Don't go looking for it. It was just a thing that I wrote and I sent over to kind of get the creative juices flowing. No, we know it's not on the record, Rob. We know James <laughs> is going to write the record. Um, thank, we appreciate your little bleep, bleep, bleep on Man Unkind, but we know that James is going to write the record. Yeah, totally. Well, here's what I like about it. It's it's Robert being... A, I, dude, I think when it's all said and done with this band, we're going to find out how much Robert really contributed in terms of these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Like just really being a good bandmate and a good friend. And kicking these guys in the ass. Yeah, for sure. That's what he did with Spit Off the Bone. You can uh-huh. see it. You can watch the evolution in the tuning rooms where he's basically like, come on. Yeah, for sure. Because he doesn't ha- he doesn't have those those you know, those other twenty years behind him in the exactly. band. He's still te- even though he's been in the band twenty years currently, he's still kinda that 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 fresh blood that that, that they can look to and be like, Oh, you like that? We you think we should do that? Okay, hell, fuck it, let's try it. I mean, just imagine Imagine being a fan of a band like Metallica, which I'm sure he was, mm-hmm. and he was in those circles. He, he, his pedigree is awesome. Ozzy Osbourne, et cetera. Infectious grooves, blah, blah, blah. And suicidal tendencies, of course. Of course, yeah. But imagine you've been in there long enough and you actually have some clout. You have a little bit of a pull. Like, I'm just trying to imagine if I was, like, playing with Dylan for 10 years. 
and I'm like, hey, I'm starting to pull out some deep cuts and be like, hey, dude, can we play these songs? Mm-hmm. Can we play? I kind of did that with Bob a little bit. Like, I got really into his records, and I would like suggest songs he hadn't played in years and years. And there's just all sorts of fun ways that you can creatively kick your bandmates in the ass. Yeah, all right, for so sure. That's cool. Yeah, and then so the, the last thing I, I pulled out is that uh, they were kind of talking about James and like entering into the creative process and the expectation of like what's James going to write about this time. And so Rob says, I think we all had a pretty good idea that he would be sharing a story and energy. Um, with all the impactful thoughts and what's going on in his world, it would almost be impossible for that not to happen. That's also what makes this album great. What he's, done, what, what he's gone through and how he, he's had to grow, it's almost like a rebirth in a lot of ways because you've got to reconnect with your inner spirit, who you are, and what you're about. Mm-hmm. And, and, now you're, and now you're sending it, you're bringing it, and you're presenting it to us and eventually the world. So it's a very heavy thing for him. So at that point, I know this is going to be a powerful record. This is going to be one of the more important records, I think, that Metallica's ever made. Yeah, they say that every time. I know. I know that's a bit of a thing. I did but... see those like little blurbs, and I was like, all right, god damn. They just say the same <laughs> thing. You know, this one's really different. This one's really special. Yeah, totally. This one might be the best. This one's really important. And I know he's th- I know he's speaking, you know, lyrically and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. You know? and, and we already know this is going to be a, a pretty heavy record as far as, you know, James digging into the past and stuff like that, which he's done a ton of times, of course, throughout their their career. But he hasn't done that a ton of times, actually. That's not that's not real common for him. He did it in a certain window. Or I guess what I mean is um is I guess when he has done it, it's been very powerful, like a Dire's Eve, you know. Yeah, I think that's one of. I think you got Load and Reload. You have Dire's Eve. Saint Anger isn't about the past. Saint Anger is about him, what he was going through at that. Yeah, time. Yeah, that was the present. For Dead sure. Magnetic's just a bunch of kind of nebulous metal sounding lyrics. Mm. And Hardwired's kind of about the future. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think this is going to be a good opportunity. I mean, I, I haven't really heard much in the lyrics so far that would suggest that it's like a super personal deep dive. Right. Yeah, maybe there's some maybe there's some songs we you know on the rest of the record we haven't heard yet that will surprise us. I don't know. Time, time will tell. Well, which, which, you know, as this episode comes out, the record's like, you know, five days away. <laughs> I think there is a gravitas surrounding the record. Obviously, conceptually, it's pretty deep. Mm-hmm. But I think I told, I think I've mentioned this before. The reason Load and Reload is so personally deep where he didn't care how the lyrics, I mean, there's songs where he's literally like talking about his mother. Yeah. And it's not like dear mother. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. Mama said, go think about Mama said. Yeah. Where he's talking about the apron strings around the neck and like, you know, he's saying like, let my let me go. Yeah. He's saying in Fixer about like, can you heal the wound from my mom and dad? Like he's just plainly saying it. I think you do that in your 30s because in your 30s, you're kind of. It's probably one of the most self-centered times of your life. Mm-hmm. I think at 60, when he's thinking about these kinds of things, I think he's thinking a lot broader. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about how we all have 72 seasons. Right. So that kind of explains why the the lyrically, I think he's less interested in like mining the inside of himself mm-hmm. and more interested in like teasing out big spiritual themes that we all deal with. Right, right. So I'll give him a pass on that. And I wanted to mention when he unboxed seventy two seasons. By the way, I loved the pack. I oh, know, did you watch the unboxing? Oh yeah, dude. When you when the gatefold opens and there's exactly, the seven to the two. Seven to two. Oh, it's yeah. so bitching. It, and it really kind of made me like the album cover a little more to see it. Like like the yellow pops in a great way. But I noticed that the the individual four pictures of him that are these really beautiful but really close up, mm-hmm. like really kind of grainy pictures. 
It's the first photo shoot I've ever seen of them where they're embracing that they look older. And and I think those photos, they look older than they actually do. And, they, and yeah. from a photography standpoint, what my, my best guess is, is what you, you pointed out. They're, they're kind of grainy. They're obviously black and white. A lot higher contrast, which is going to highlight any shadows under your eyes, wrinkles. It's going to highlight wrinkles. Yeah, it's going to highlight imperfections. Exactly. And it, and what it what it what I thought when I watched it, I was kind of actually a little taken aback by it. I was pretty stunned by it was. Like, they're not super flattering pictures. Yeah. Especially the one of James. Mm-hmm. And I really respect and appreciate it because it, it, it falls in line with the idea of the album. Yeah. And, and it kind of might be a swan song album, dude. We, I think we all need to be, maybe be prepared for that. Like, this might be the last statement. It could be. Yeah, for sure. And then we're just going to get reimaginings of all their hit songs for the rest of their career. <laughs> Let's get acoustic versions forever. <laughs> all right. Well, very cool stuff. All right. I think it's time to get to some AMA questions. This is part two. Uh, we went, did the Patreon ones first. We're going to go through all the ones on the social media accounts. And we got some really great questions. I'm looking forward to a lot of these. But before we do that, let's uh, hear a little Patreon commercial. And we'll be back very soon. See you in a minute. Hey, everyone. Clinton Ethan here. And we want to tell you about a little thing called Patreon. Patreon is an easy and interactive way to support the people who make the things that you love. For as little as five bucks a month, you can ensure that Metal Up Your Podcast can continue to grow in quality and content. That's equivalent to a cup of coffee or a beer once a month. Not only is it easy and affordable, but we've made it a priority since day one to give back to our Patreon community. We've given away deluxe box sets, rare vinyl, black and whiskey, concert tickets to SM2 and Slane Castle, all four of our Cover Our World Black and EPs, 26 quarantine covers, and Lunar Satan demos, invitations to exclusive Zoom happy hours, the ability to ask our guests like Jay Weinberg of Slipknot, Lizzie Hale, and members of the Metallica crew your very own questions, and eligibility for our Metal Tale series where you can be a guest on Metal Up Your Podcast. And tell us all about a notable Metallica show you've been to. Subscribe to Patreon today and immediately get access to years worth of bonus content. Thank you for supporting the people who make the things that you love. Peace. Adios. I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print. Little, yellow, different. All right, we're back, and we're going to get into the AMA questions here. I'm going to steer the ship. I got, uh, I think, we got a bunch. We got a bunch. That's all I'll say. But a lot of really cool stuff in here. I'm excited to Thank talk about Thank you to everybody who wrote in and, and took an interest in what it's like being on the road. Yeah, this was, like I said before, that this the response was pretty overwhelming. You know, um, way more questions than we expected. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. I'm physically overwhelmed. I'm wearing a diaper because I'm not sure that I can control my bodily functions. Give it up for diapers. What an amazing invention. I mean, it really is. You don't have to. I mean, like, why go to the bathroom when you can take the bathroom with you? Yeah. You want to take a portable bathroom everywhere you go? Get an adult diaper, period. Like, all the smart people in the world are like, hey, we engineered a porta potty, we engineered a bathroom, plumbing, all these things. Yeah, I wish I could have passed this advice on to James um, regarding divorce and stuff. The way to keep love alive. Is first of all, get a diaper, wear yeah. a diaper, use the diaper. B, have your wife change your diaper. Once a day minimum, I'm going to say up to three or four times a day, depending on, you know, how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. That's really the secret to a long marriage. I mean, you've been married a long time. Yeah. What, is the diaper method kind of how you guys have kept the spark there? Yeah, that was huge. Yeah, I, I met with a counselor early on that recommended that. And so, yeah, we right. change each other's diapers and all that stuff. We got the baby wipes and 
It really is the secret to our success. <laughs> you, get the, you like the powder too, right? The talcum powder? Well, the powder's great for afterwards just to kind of keep right. things dry down there and, and, and yeah. smelling fresh. <laughs> yeah, because I think the first 10 years of your marriage, you had the rat. You had a rash. Real rashy, rash. yeah, a little chafy, if you yeah. will. Yeah, but right. Well, speaking of, there is some poop talk coming up on one of these questions. So. <laughs> oh, well, thank goodness. <laughs> okay, our first question is from Michael Palmerio. It says, My favorite thing to do on tour to kill time is to hit record stores. Do you all do this too? If so, some best finds on the road. Answer is yes, uh, we do that. I mean, does it, how does he not know that we do that? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty. Yeah, of course I mean, we do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would although say, although I do it less than I ever have. Same. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, I've got the record. I've, last night I was listening to the records I picked up on tour, which is always a fun thing to do when getting home from tour. I think I picked up thirteen records on a six-week tour, which which isn't a, a lot, I guess. You yeah, know? Like I in, think I I think I did the same. I well, I bought a Randy Newman box set that had like six records in it. Didn't you get a Dylan box too? I got the new Time Out of Mind. It's it's um. So Dylan does a thing called the bootleg series, which is one of the best like extra things that I've ever seen of any fan thing. Like right. Metallica is probably the best, like Metallica puts out the best box sets ever, but the Dylan stuff is really, really juicy, amazing stuff. Yeah. So the new one is, and he tends to go chronologically. So this new one is time out of mind, but from 1997, which is Dan- Daniel Lanois last produced album for dylan mm-hmm. which is great it has to make you feel my love most people know that song because of adele now but it also has this great song called love sick it has this my, one of my favorite dylan songs called not dark yet anyway very awesome murky lenoir swampy shit mm-hmm. this is called time out of mind fragments and it's a remix of time out of mind and it's really dry oh okay and when you dry it up like a lot of later dylan like i'm gonna say from like kind of from time out of mind until now is either kind of croony 40 sounding Sinatra singy stuff or just straight up like blues yeah but not like eric clapton just like almost like real dirty blues kind of stuff exactly like like mississippi dirty blues yeah yeah and this record dried up is just kind of an awesome blues record cool these are some of his best songs like from this from this era till present it won him his first Grammy, first awesome. and only Grammy. Um, so anyway, so this is time out of mind, but dried up. So I don't know how to feel about that because I love the murky Lamois stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then it's got like all the outtakes. So you can hear these, you know, Dylan never plays a song the same way twice. Right. And what's really wild about that is you hear, I'm sure a lot of people aren't that familiar with time out of mind, but let's take a song like Like a Rolling Stone, probably his most famous song, or Blowing in the Wind. Mm-hmm. The recording that that we know that's like part of the fabric of American culture and just all culture in the world, because Dylan touched everything, he would have played it differently if he had played it another time. Right, yeah. And then that, the recording we have of his most famous songs are just simply what happened that one time. Yeah, it's like a snippet into that, into his brain in that time in the studio. He just never plays them the same. And so, like, think about that. Like, what other artists are like that? Do you know any... Do you have any favorite bands? Because a band like Metallica, and I'm not saying that's the only way to do it. Right. There's a million ways to do anything creative. Metallica wrote a song called Master of Puppets, and it goes like this. One, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's yeah, it's laid out. And when you play Master of Puppets, you kind of want it to sound like Master of Puppets. I think the only artist that I love that I could think of that has, and I would even say done it more, just 
touched on it, dabbled in it from time to time as Elvis Costello doing different versions of his big yeah, songs. That's a good that's a good response. He does do that. But and you know what? Yeah. You know why? Honestly, huge Dylan freak. Yeah, oh yeah. I was thinking about Counting Crows. Like I remember the first time I saw the I don't do people on the podcast know that I'm a huge Counting Crows fan? I b- I believe they do. Okay. I know that we do the gray is my favorite color, but I'm actually a huge fan. It might have started with something around that era. Okay. With gray. <laughs> 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 you know how i became a fan i don't know if i told this story okay my mom when mr jones came out which is what that song's from in fact in that song he actually says i want to be bob dylan yeah um because he he's a dylan freak too and he never plays he never sings a song the way it goes um the way i heard the counting crows was whatever year august and everything after came out with like 94 i remember exactly where i was in my childhood home and my mom called me to the television to mtv she said, Clint, come here, because I was a little music nerd. And she was kind of making fun of when he missed a job, when he goes in that falsetto. Yeah. She was kind of saying it sounded silly, and she thought I would think it was funny. Yeah. So she called me to the TV, and I remember watching that video, and I've been a fan ever since, period. Yeah, man. And that song is super deep. That is a deep song lyrically. Yeah. So for all you burgeoning songwriters, go study those lyrics. Right, yeah. But he, he actually even says in the song, I want to be Bob Dylan. And this Mr. Jones is actually derived from a song called Ballad of a Thin Man from what is that? Is that on Highway 61 where Dylan's talking to like this kind of fake journalist who he keeps calling Mr. Jones? Mm -hmm. He says something's happening and you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? Right. Uh, Because so many of these journalists at the time who thought Bob was the spokesperson for generation kept reading all this meaning into his songs that he was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. So anyway, um, yeah, Elvis Costello is another artist. Who does I would, that. I, another one that came to mind too was Sting. I've never seen a lot of live Sting stuff. Well, not like, not, not uh, to the point where he's playing it different every time, but if, like for instance, I wa- there was like this YouTube uh, kind of short documentary about the police reunion back in whenever that was, 2009 or something. And Stuart Copeland was kind of complaining that Sting just keeps changing all of our songs. Uh, and he keeps yeah. like adding sections and breaking down parts that weren't on the record and all the stuff like that, you know. So he's kind of been known to do that from time to time. Right. The other part of the question, we kind of, you kind of talked about the Dylan stuff, other finds that you found on the road. There's five here. I was pulling out what I just bought. I was stuck on Leonard Skinner Street Survivors. I picked up Eagles, One of These Nights, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Damn Torpedoes. And for Clint, I uh, picked up Little Criminals by Randy Newman. Don't do it for me. Do it for you. Well, I'm doing it for myself, but it was inspired by you. Yeah, yeah. Because you've been That's talking about one. Newman a lot. That one famously has a song called Short People, in which uh, Randy Newman says, short people have no reason to live. <laughs> Damn. But he's obviously speaking. Oh, Randy Newman often wrote as an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Do you know what, do you know what that means? Uh, ish. I mean. It means that when he says short people have no reason to live, he's not being serious. Not being literal. He's he's inhabiting a character who is a bigot about short people. Yeah, right. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. A lot of his songs are like that. Now, there's another song on that album that you bought called Little Criminals. Short People is a big famous song. By the way, BGV's on little, on Short People, Don Henley, Glenn Fry. Hell yeah. Who got their start singing BGV's. Yeah. For him, for Randy, for Linda Ronstadt. All right. There's a song on that album called In Germany Before the War, which is the song Bob Schneider played for me that made me a Randy Newman fan. Awesome. This really beautiful piano song. It's a really, really dark song about a murderer, and he's the murderer. Awesome, but obviously, Randy Newman's not murdering anybody. He's of course, the, yeah. Uh, you've got a friend, Toy Story guy. So it's like a, it's based essentially what, like writing in third person. Yeah, yeah. You're telling a story, but you're an unreliable narrator. So what you're saying may or may not be true. Okay. You know what I mean? It's it's a it's a writing technique. I've written one song like that actually. 
Yeah, it's fun. It's, yeah. you know. I, actually, I've probably written more. I just, I, I need to go back and listen. <laughs> if you really want to get gnarly on Unreliable Narrator, check out a song by Randy Newman called Rednecks. Okay. And maybe don't play it out loud. Maybe listen to it with headphones. <laughs> okay, we'll do. Um, all right, let's move on. All right, next one um, from Boggy2137. What is the one non-music related thing that it's a mu- that's a must on tour? What is the one thing non-music related that's a must on the road? Um, uh, water? Pri- privacy? Well, that ain't happening. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very rare on the road to get any of that. Um, I mean, there's obviously just the normal stuff. I mean, like, bring your fucking toothbrush, damn it. <laughs> but... Um, the one thing non-music related that's a must on the road. Hmm. What an interesting question. Yeah, very interesting question. Um, one that comes to mind to me is patience. I mean, it's not a physical, you know, thing you can hold in your hand, but I mean, you know. What tour- are you being patient for? Just touring. It just, just, it's, you know, touring's not easy. You're away from everybody you love, all these things we've talked about. Um, I feel like focusing too much on the tour and on getting home sometimes can make it drag on longer it could also sometimes at least from speaking for myself of course it could also uh kind of make me hit that burnout period faster so you're saying be patient about getting home just about about getting through the tour like not trying to focus too much on okay god we only have this we, we damn it we have five weeks left you know things like that like that's been helpful for me i guess as far as just being patient taking it day by day uh, rather than uh, focusing too much on how long we're going to be out, you know, um, when I've done that in the past, like I'll hit that mentally burnt out phase a lot faster. If that makes any sense. Yeah. That's hard to do when you got a kid at home who's counting sleeps. I'm I'm sure it is. Cause, yeah. Cause the way you do it with that is you, you have to go through like, all right, 29 more sleeps, yeah, 28 totally. more sleeps. And it's a huge, you know, you know, musicians that have kids versus not having kids. There is a, obviously a massive difference in how, you're having to navigate tour, you know, like you said, you've got a kid at home telling you, daddy, 28 more sleeps, you know, so you have a reminder every day, stuff like that. Or just Um, saying, when are you coming home every day? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I think, I think a broader thing, and I think patients would fall into this is whatever your thing is that keeps you excited about the work you're doing, whether it's going to record stores or getting sleep Mm -hmm. or hitting a pin or having some beers or whatever it is for you, you just need to do that. Right. That's going to be different for everybody. For me, it used to be, yeah, like, dude, let's get up and go to a coffee shop and go find a record store. Yeah. That's not really it for me these days um, just because I have too many goddamn records. I'm, like, looking at them all right now. I'm like, what am I going to do with all this? (laughs) Right. Well, there's a lot of other stuff that, you know, creatively or whatever work-wise that people like us are doing on the road. You know, we're trying to do the podcast on the road, you know, songwriting, editing other podcasts, things like that, you know, so... Keeping yourself busy can be a good thing, but sometimes it's just like, damn it, like I'm just I'm out here working and doing all this other work, you know, it no, can get I hate overwhelming. Doing all the other stuff. I know. Yeah, it can get very, very tiresome. But um appreciate the question, man. Uh next one, Gil Mendoza. What is your favorite slash best gas station chain to stop across the country? Can I wait to see and possibly meet you guys at the Austin show? Well, we've already played the Austin show. I don't think we mentioned Gil, so apologies. But um The answer is no. <laughs> the answer is uh meet me by the dirt pile in Austin. Uh, favorite best gas station chain. I don't really, I don't care. Um, I know we have, uh, our merch girl, Nicole, that's a huge Bucky's fan. Um, well, I mean, here's what you got to think about. You got to think about, you got to go number two and it's, mm-hmm. it's an emergency. Where do you want to stop? I'm going to, my number one, where I feel the most comfortable if I've got to go to the bathroom is either pilot or Bucky's. Yeah. Or love. 
in any truck stop, there's a TNA and there's Loves. Yeah. I would say I would put I would put Pilot, TNA, and Loves in a special bracket. Yeah, for sure. Where you know you're probably going to have a, a a stall and there might be privacy. Right. Exactly. Bucky's is the best. Like I'm not a huge Bucky's freak, um, but when you have to go to the bathroom on the road, Bucky's is the best because they have like 50 stalls that are completely like here's what here's some things I don't understand about public bathrooms. Okay. They need to all have walls from the ground to the ceiling. Yes. Why is Period. there a gap? Why is there a gap at the bottom? Period. They need to all have music playing. Mm-hmm. Period. Yes. What else do we need? Um, those are my two big things. Cleaned, cleaned on the rig. Yeah, I ex- well, that's normal. That's, I expect that's that. normal. The but I, I noticed the water, the water in the toilet to flush. Right. Um, but I noticed but when I, we were but, in Europe last summer. Uh, it's it's a whole different standard over there. Like almost every little truck stop, rest stop, we'd stop at to use the bathroom. I'm like, damn it, this is clean. The cleanest bathrooms in the world are in Japan. Oh God, yeah. The best and cleanest public bathrooms in the world, Japan. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and clean streets, clean everything, and clean Heinies. Because guess what? They're rocking over there twenty four seven bidets. Bidets. They are shooting water onto their little buttholes <laughs> every day, <laughs> all day, true. which is wonderful. Do think about it. It's if someone, awesome. If someone splatters you with diarrhea, are you washing it off with water or are you wiping it off with a dry paper towel? Right. Bidets make sense. I mean, if you if you step in dog shit in your backyard, you don't go grab a napkin and try to get it out of there. You take the hose and you spray it out. You fucking get Rambo style and you hose that shit down. Oh, yeah, literally. for sure. Yeah. I remember the first when I went to Japan for the first and only time. My first bidet experience in a hotel room. I got in there. I turned that thing on. I was like, oh, man, I get it. This is awesome. I'm feeling clean. Couldn't turn it off for about 10 minutes. Yeah, my wife would always know when I was pooping because as soon as that thing hit, I'd go, ah! Yeah, whoop! <laughs> totally. Like, even, like, we were there for, like, tw- 10 or 12 days, and even after I'd kind of gotten used to it, because I'm regular. I poop at least once a day. Yeah. And I hope all of you out there are pooping at least once a day. This has been your proctologist, Clint Well speaking. Um, but even after like the sixth time, even that seventh time, I'm like going to hit it. And as soon as it's, you know, because it's cold too, it it's cold and sharp. <sighs> well, Gil, did you think that conversation would uh, descend into some bidet, uh, talks? Some, I doubt it, but that's the magic of metal up your podcast. Some BM talk. <laughs> All right. Next question is from Caleb Gallo. What was something about touring that you were excited about as a kid, but found out it was a myth? Uh, chicks, drugs. Smashing up TVs. I mean, I don't know. Do you have an answer for that? I mean, I think as an actual kid, like before I even toured at all, I mean, you see all those poison videos and them on the road. It's like debauchery and chicks and all that stuff. Then I went on the road. It's like, no, it's mostly just people sitting around in, the current, in present day, just sitting around on their phones. It's nothing like that. But I, I don't think I went into my very first tour going, oh, my God, there's going to be just debauchery every day. Well, and what we do is so different. I mean, you you've grown up a band guy, but guess what? You're not a band guy anymore. You're right. a side guy. Right. Totally. And the side guy thing is just such a different thing. Like, if I was in a band that was successful, I probably would not be doing well. Yeah. Like if I was like in Coldplay and I was in Coldplay at like twenty two, mm-hmm. I'd probably be doing all the things you can do when you're twenty two and in a band like Coldplay. Probably, I'm just, I'm just being honest. Hey, well, that's what this is all about. I, I um, mean, I, I agree. I think that you know, I often think about like you know, a decade like the '80s, for instance. God, if I was if I was in my early twenties and in a glam band, hair tees, wearing makeup, no accountability. Oh, for sure, for sure. Well, they're all like they're all like uh, 
Ozzy and Nikki Six snorted ants. There's a part of me that's like, hell yeah. Hell yeah, let's do it. There's just a part of me that thinks it's kind of cool. <laughs> I know. Uh, someone recently was telling me that uh, they worked for Billy Corgan and that Billy Corgan has this rule that if you yawn in front of him, you're fired for yawning. For yawning. Now, the mostly the human being in me, um, the dad in me, the husband in me, the, the guy in me that's normal. I hear that and I go, what a fucking monster. What a maniacal lunatic. Mm-hmm. But there's something in me that goes, that's kind of badass. Hell yeah. There's something just so Axl Rose crazy about it. Yeah. That, and it's so such an insane demand. Mm-hmm. And I miss that in rock and roll. Uh, but the side guy trajectory is like, you're just hopping from gig to gig and you're uh, a friend of mine used to call it a being a journeyman. Yeah. And you know, being a side guy is a really special talent because you have to learn a lot of different material, a lot of different kinds of material. You'd be willing to hop in a lot of different kinds of situations. Dude, I can't tell you how many artists I've played for. Mm-hmm. Right. A hundred? Yeah. A hundred artists where I'm hopping in vans, planes, trains, automobiles, learning this 75-minute set, this 90-minute set, learning the guitar solos, learning the harmonies, learning the lyrics, then also navigating all of these different personalities. Yeah, for sure. That's just, you, it's just different than if you're just like in a band that's doing well. Yeah. And you play in that band. Right. I don't know what that's like. I was in some bands in high school. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But but my career in Nashville has been, you get a call and you go show up at a bus call or a rehearsal or an audition mm-hmm. and you've got to put on a lot of different hats. You've got to be super professional. Yep. So maybe the idea that MTV sold us, but I just can't remember when that idea broke from reality for me because in Birmingham, I was a side guy. Yeah. Much less successful because the ceiling there is a lot lower. Sure. But I've always like just played for a million people, mm-hmm. like kind of coming from the cover band world. Yeah, totally. So I don't know. I can't remember what what's what I thought it was that's been disappointing or or mythological. I just don't think when I first my very first tour I did in '98, I don't think I had any expectations in, at that point. I think I don't I, think I did either. I remember because you know it wasn't the '80s, so it was like, well, that was over that whole thing, and then like you know the '90s was kind of anti that in a lot of ways, and so I was in like a punk rock band, and it was like. All I thought in my mind was I'm 19 years old. I'm going on the road. My parents are fucking worried, <laughs> as they should have been. And we're just going to go fucking play. You know, we we're proud of this record we made. We're going to go play it for people. And we were just, we were more focused on, like, the fact that every night we play, we're like, oh, my God. 300 people in Missouri came to see our little band from Orange County. Like, this is crazy. Like, that was so blowing our minds that, like, we didn't think about, like, expectations and stuff like that. We're just like, we hope people show up. Right. And that was pretty much it. I think the biggest one really is that it's not a big party. It really yeah. can't be, especially like the older you get. It just can't be a big party. Yeah, for sure. You'll die. That's why a lot of those people died. Yep, exactly. I think maybe one thing that would be surprising for people to know is how autopilot you can be on stage. Yeah. Like just thinking about really anything else. Yeah, for sure. That might have been something that would have surprised me as a kid. Like I remember reading an interview with James Taylor when I was a kid. I'm a huge James Taylor fan. He was talking about fire and rain and fire and rain is just all about this chick he knew when he was in a psych ward who killed herself. And, uh, someone asked him like, Oh, do you still get emotional when you play that song? And he was just like, no, yeah, I've played that song a thousand times. <laughs> totally. it, it makes no sense for me to like go to that exact emotional place. Every time I sing fire and rain, right? He's like, I understand that when I play it for that, someone in the crowd that came to see me, 
that's emotional for them. He's like, I, he's like, that's really what I tap into. If mm -hmm. I, if I tap into anything, cause really what he's doing is just doing his job, which is to sing a song that people like. Right. And that person in the crowd, that's maybe that's their third time hearing that song live. So it's impacting them like crazy. But for James Taylor to sing it number 1236 times or their first time ever hearing it, yeah. and maybe the only time they'll ever hear the man who wrote it, sing it. Yeah. So that it just imbues a different power onto it other than him being like, oh, I'm sad my friend died in 1968 mm -hmm, and right. he's at the Beacon Theater in 2005 playing fire and fucking rain. <laughs> right. <laughs> and not crying about it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, that's a good answer. Uh, next question. Rob Baird, is there a song that you found went over better live than you were expecting or vice versa? Oh, uh, uh, were you expecting a great reaction and was it a dud? Like in Morgan's set? I guess on this tour he's referring to. I mean, that's definitely happened over the years. Uh, let's not talk about anything other than Morgan because that's just going to get in the uh, weeds. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, no one wants to hear about a Griffin House song that I thought was cool. <laughs> we put together a pretty cool cover of Boys of Summer into, uh, what's the other song? Oh, Take Me Home Tonight. And it just didn't work. And I thought it was real cool. I thought it'd be awesome, but it didn't work. That would be an example. A song that I didn't think would work that goes over well. I, I think it's all kind of doing what I thought it would do, except for that one Boys of Summer cover. I thought that would be cooler. Yeah, there was there was maybe like a one brief moment during the Take Me Home Tonight chorus where people were kind of livening up a little bit. But yeah, overall, it, it compared to the other cover stuff we, we, we've done, it wasn't even close, unfortunately, because it was fun. It was a cool arrangement. I mean, it's probably top 20 song for me. It's one of the greatest <laughs> songs of all time. And it's so cool to hear Morgan sing it. I know. I know. It's so awesome. But it just didn't work. I, I think her fans were too young or something. Or I don't know. They, I don't know. Maybe they don't know the song. Maybe we should have done the Atari's version. Damn Dude, when we, were, when we were at the CMTs the other day, uh, we were sitting next to these, they call them seat fillers. They're basically just attractive women that they put in seats when the stars don't show up. Right. And these motherfuckers didn't know who Slash was. Gosh, that's insane. And one of these girls who I ended up talking to and becoming friends with, she's cool. Shout out to Kate if she's out there. Uh, she, I said, I said, you know, Slash is about to play. And she was like, she, and she had that look of like, I know that I should know who that is, but I don't. <laughs> right. And I said, you know what? It's cool. Because she was a nice looking, young looking girl, you know. I said, well, how old are you? And she said, 31. Oh, wow. And I said, well, that's too old. That's too old to not know who Slash is. Like, yeah, sorry. I thought she was going to say like 23. If she'd have been like, I'm 23. I like Halsey. It's like. Okay, yeah, well, there's no room for Slash in your world. Yeah, for sure. But she said 31. 31, I mean. And I'm sorry, but if you're, dude, if you're 30, if you're 30 or older, you need to know who Slash is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I guarantee that girl knew what Paradise City was. I think the song we threw at her was Sweet Child of Mine, and she did know that. Yeah. Interesting. But, but good God, you need to know who Slash is. I know, seriously. Well, speaking of someone who knows Slash, Joey Ursick asks... Are you able to get into lounge position in the bunks? And if so, how? Well, that's an easy one to answer. You just lay down. I mean, being in the bunk is 24-7 lounge position. You can't do anything else in there. The only way you could do something else besides lounge position is if you have condo bunks, which are considerably taller, where you could sit up if you wanted to sit up and read something or whatever. Um, I don't know anyone who does that. Do you sit up in those? No. I mean, the only time I would – not, I don't sit up there and just, like, hang out. You know, the only time I would do that is, like, getting up in the morning, grabbing something as you're exiting the bunk, which is normal. But but uh, the bunk is the epitome of lounge position. Imagine a coffin – imagine a coffin hurling down the road at 60 miles an hour. That's what the bunk is. That's what the bunk is with, with really nice LED lights. It's horrible. Now, Ethan sleeps like a baby in there. I don't know what happened to you. You can show me on the doll I don't know. where something went really wrong with you, where you sleep better on this than at home. But bunks are horrible. And believe me, I stay in there more than anybody. Yeah, you do. 
because it's the only way to have privacy. Right. And you're not even, it's not even really private because everyone can hear every single fucking squeak you make because <laughs> it's, it's true. Real, everyone's real close to you. Yeah. You're, being separ- you're separated by a really thin curtain. That's it. But the, but the thing is the rule in the, what we call the bunk alley where all the bunks are is it's dark and it's quiet. People can't talk in there. And cold. And I don't need to hear you motherfuckers talking about all the same shit you talk about every day. So I love to say my bunk because I know that you got, everyone has to shut up in there. Mm-hmm. That's one of my biggest pet peeves on any tour I've ever been on is when there's always somebody that comes in the bunk here on the phone or something. Toured with a video guy that he would every day he knew that a couple people would take a nap. Especially the crew guys that had to get up crazy early. And he'd come into the bunk area, full voice. Oh, what? What? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. And everybody opened their curtain like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you, you should know this is quiet area. Well, he sounds like an idiot. Um, yes. That sounds like a one conversation should stop that. All right. The other thing I'd like to say to Joey is that lounge position isn't just physically something you can do. Lounge position is a state of mind. That's right. And so, I mean, you could be running a 10K and be in lounge position in your mm-hmm. mind. In fact, that might be the only way to run a 10K and succeed is to somewhere in your mind be in lounge position. They, right. they call it the runner's high. Yeah. yeah That's lounge sure. position. Yeah, lounge position can happen in, in all, all walks of life, all You can activities. be taking a shower and be in lounge position. When I was a kid, I used to, my first band I ever started was called the Lay Down Showers. Because <laughs> in high school, I used to take lay down showers. Yeah, I've done that. Oh, yeah. And where you either bathe first and then you enjoy the lay down shower, or you lay down first and enjoy some of the serenity of a 10 minutes of hot water pouring on you. Yep. And then you bathe and get out. Yep. I prefer to go ahead and get the bathing done. Oh, yeah. And I don't re- recommend doing this in any shower other than your own. Because here's another service announcement for everybody out there. Everybody in the world pees in the shower. Mm-hmm. It's true. So don't take baths in hotels. Don't do lay down <laughs> showers in hotels. That's very true. <laughs> okay, next question from Kay uh, Kind of Dieter. Growing older involves reevaluating one's life choices. Do you see yourself touring in, let's say, five years under the current impression of this long-ass tour? Um, I hope not. You don't see yourself touring in five years? No, not touring. Like under, uh, like, like under the current impression of this long-ass tour. I, I guess I'm answering it as if doing a tour this long uh, when I'm 50 years old. Like, Usually the older you get, the different artists you're playing for, touring becomes a little more comfortable, uh, a little more broken up. You know, like, you know, obviously Metallica is a, di- a different example on another planet because they're huge, but you know, they do a two-week-on, two-week-off thing. A lot of country artists just, just do the weekend thing. The tour length stays like this for five more years, every single tour. That that can get very tiring the older you get. No, I don't think I could do another a sing, another tour that's more than four weeks. Right, exactly. I like what I like what we did when we did that Lucero tour. It was three weeks, little break, then three weeks. That was nice because you know, you, three weeks to me is like such the perfect time to you know too long. No, it's still too long. Bob Schneider did the perfect thing. He would try to be home um, every t- twelve days of work. 12 days gone and it would usually shape out to two weeks because if you would have one or two off days yeah sure and so but he I, I, I remember hearing his conversations with his manager at that time where he was like he was like looking at the run and he was like nope that's 14 days no I'm not doing it I'm not going to be away from my son for more than 14 days period. right and that really stuck with me this is before I even had a kid I remember yeah. watching him negotiate that it's what's so crazy is that Nova is older than his son Luke was when I first met Bob. That's how long I've known Bob. Wow. And now Luke's going to college. But when I met Luke, he was like six. Yeah. And now he's a fucking man. Wow. Going to college. He's taller than Bob. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. But anyway, I would watch that. You know, I was a 27-year-old childless dude just having fun, just mm-hmm. looking for the next drink, next rock show. 
And I remember him being like, no, I'm not going to do it, you know? Yeah. And I mean, maybe when Nova's grown, if I want to like do the Dylan never ending tour thing. Yeah. If my wife doesn't like me anymore or whatever, <laughs> but I, I can't give all this time away to touring because right. I'm not get, you know, none of us are getting rich doing it. We're totally. just paying our bills. Yes. So when you, I, I went ad nauseum about this in the last episode, but it's the real shit. It's like, when you start thinking about what you're doing and why you do it, what your why is, which mm-hmm. sounds real woo woo, but I think it's pretty important. Like, if your why at this stage is to just go out and get fucked up and like see Boston again, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to say to that as a priority. But your why should be, I think, at our age, to be building something, mm-hmm. yeah, to be doing your vocation that you're good at. There's a, all sorts of like positive merit in doing something you're good at. And it's what we do. We make music. And to make music now, no one buys records. You have to go tour. Yeah, for sure. But if you're just, if you live for, I, I can't identify with the mindset that lives to be out there. Mm-hmm. You're out there to live. You're out there to make a life that you can actually live. Yes, totally. And so. And also, you know, I feel like it's it's too, because it's, that, that's a common question musicians get asked all the time. Like, hey, where do you see yourself in five years? Still doing this, whatever. It's a tough question to answer because I, they, my general answer is I don't know. I'm like I don't know how I'm going to feel in five years. In five years, I might be like I'm I, I'm going to transfer transition into something else at home and not tour anymore. I just don't know. I mean, I still enjoy it, but it is it's a tough thing to answer. Like, I mean, I don't have a lot of alternatives. Yes, yeah, and if I if I could make the same amount of money at home that I make on the road, whether it's through like writing songs or podcasting, I would do it. Yeah, I would absolutely do it. So. What does that say about my why? You know, right, right, exactly. Like, like I love, I love Morgan. I love tour. I'm gonna tour. I want to make music with her the rest of my life. Yeah, you know, like I, it's, it's been very fulfilling in a lot of different ways because sure. I love her music and I love her like a sister. And watching this thing grow and being invested in it from kind of ground up has been a joy of my life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But if I can make a living in where I'm sitting right now in lounge position. Mm-hmm. I would choose that. Yeah, I've I've said that to my wife about like anytime I've come home from doing a couple day sessions at the smokestack, I'm like, damn it, if I could do that two weeks a month, like I would consider just doing that only. I knew I knew a guy that like became independently wealthy somehow, like some of his parents died or some bullshit where he was just a lot of money. He was a side guy doing I won't say the artist he worked for, but an artist comparable to Rodney Atkins. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't Kenny Chesney or Jason Aldean. It wasn't the top guys. Right. And he still went to bus call. He still went to bus call every Thursday. And I remember talking to him, I was getting a drink with him. And I was like, I just don't get it, man. Yeah. I do not get like he'd show up to bus call for this mid level country artist in like a fucking Ferrari. <laughs> and he would you know what I mean? Like but, and then he would yeah. go do these shows for Whatever the pay, the, the show pay was comp- I can't say what it is. I guess it would have been irrelevant to him if he was already rich. He didn't need any money. Right. He just liked, he just liked his why. I, I, I don't know. I honestly, I asked him and I couldn't understand it because yeah. he just wanted to get on the bus. He wanted, he was a bass player. Yeah. He liked playing bass in front of people. And like, I like doing all that. But goddamn, I've done it almost my entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you could give me a way to stay home and make money, that's what I would do. Yeah, yeah, sure. If I was in U2, different story. I'm going to be in U2 forever. <laughs> Obviously. Because I'm going to fly private everywhere and I'm going to get paid a million dollars every show. Yeah. And I get to be in U2. Yeah. That's that's like 
an award and a gift in of itself. Totally. If I get to be in Metallica, but to go out and play the the cricket festival in fucking Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah. And then and then head on over to the bustling metropolis of Slidell. Yeah, right. And play at the the crocodile didgeridoo. <laughs> the crocodile didgeridoo. For what? For four hundred dollars a sh- like it's just like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And really what it was is he just liked getting drunk on a bus and he liked trying to fuck chicks. Yeah. Okay, and well, that's and that was his why. There's and his whatever. Why, yeah. That's you can have whatever why you want. It's just not mine. And it's hard for me to understand it. Yeah, that's yeah, that seems insane. Well, okay. Next question is, is specifically for you, Clint. From Tyler Black, what sort of overdrives are you running on this tour, and how are you setting up for the acoustic shows? Thank you for the question. I'm excited to talk about this. I don't want to bore Ethan. No, I'm, I'm a guitar player. I'm not bored by this. The drives to check out, like, but I've said this several times when I get like an overdrive that I think is really cool. Overdrives are like, man, there's just so many, and so many of them kind of do similar stuff, and so many of them are actually bad, and some of, a lot of the boutique ones are bullshit. But let me tell you about the ones I use. I use the Greer Lightspeed which I cannot recommend highly enough. I think it's 200 bucks. It's always on. It's never not on. It's this great low gain. It just sounds like a broken up amp. That's going into a a protein, which is made by a company called Brown, B-R-O-W-N-E. The protein has two sides. It has a blues breaker side, which is kind of what the light speed is. Mm -hmm. And then it has the, um, the ODR, the green ODR one tube screamer side. Right. And they're both, mid gain and high gain they stack beautifully into each other they stack great with the uh the light speed so those are my three overdrives between those three things you can do anything in yeah. my opinion yeah yeah Th- that protein it really kicks ass man it's so good it's expensive but if you think about it it's basically two badass boutique overdrives in one i think yeah. it's like 325 and what's rad about that too is that i noticed because with a lot of tube screamers and tube screamer kind of clone type pedals is much like the original Tube Screamer, when you turn that thing on, that low end gets sucked out. And that protein, I feel like there's it adds, only adds to it. I think Tube Screamers are extremely overrated. They're pretty overrated, yeah. The acoustic setup, I have I have a, basically a second Flydate board that has another Line 6 Helix on it. That Helix feeds into a Walrus Audio Stereo Canvas DI line selector. And so I'll have just like a patch. I have an acoustic patch that just has some EQ and compression. And I have a volume pedal and expression pedal. And that will just feed straight into the PA. Mm-hmm. But I can also run my electric rig through it, too. Because when I do acoustic shows with Morgan, I play electric and acoustic. Yeah. So I have this really cool system. with, And really, the brain of it is this Line 6 Helix, or the HX Stomp, which is... I have two of them now. I fucking love them. And I can basically have an electric and acoustic rig, pristine. They sound great. A few presets for each one, depending on what I'm playing. And that's what I'm going to do uh, on the acoustic tour here and in the UK. Nice. All right. Casey uh, Phipps asks, are there certain guitars in your arsenal that you're too, ne- too nervous to take on the road? If so, which ones? Well, what about you? My answer is no. I, I, there's, there's nothing I own uh, guitar-wise that I wouldn't, I wouldn't take on the road. I think even if I had my even if even if my dad never sold his sixty five three thirty five and it was in my possession, I'd still take that on the road. Because in my opinion, it's, unless you're, we're talking like a fucking rare guitar that's worth you know like a greenie type sitch where you don't, you know you're metallic and you can have security and all that shit. But yeah, yeah, I would I would still take it out. To me, guitars are made to be played, and and you know I would I I wouldn't leave anything at home. Yeah, I agree. I love that uh, that Mike McCready and Kirk take their great shit out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, my, I have this j200 that my grandfather gave me i've told this story a bunch of times i won't tell it again but 
it's a pretty special guitar and i have taken it every literally everywhere in the world yeah most songs i've written have been with it most recordings i've done i recorded with it like i've not been precious about that guitar at all it's an 80 it's an 89 j200 mm-hmm. and um but i do think i've kind of retired that from the road but only yeah. because it's like a, my daughter's birthright in a way like yeah. my grandfather's dead he gave me that guitar he actually gave me a couple but i still have this one and I did so much work with it in my 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And and it somehow never got destroyed or lost or stolen. <laughs> right. And now I ha- I'm so lucky that I have so many cool guitars that I don't really need to take it. Yeah, for sure. So I, I like it just being here because it's going to, I mean, I'm never going to sell it ever in a million years, even yeah. if I didn't, if I was penniless. Yeah. I guess I would sell it to feed my kid, but thankfully I'm not really anywhere close to that situation. <laughs> and I want to give it to her, you know? Yeah, like, for sure. All my other shit, I don't think would have any significance to give her. I think it would just be a pain in the ass for her to deal with and sell. Mm-hmm. But I want to give her that one, and you know, and I want her to have. I want that to stay in my family. I can. I, uh, in regards to your guitar collection, I could see uh, your three thirty five kind of being that sentimental guitar, maybe to Nova, just because of the story that it has with you yeah. and Isabel moving to Nashville and stuff. Yeah, that's actually true. That is actually one that I would be sad if she sold if mm-hmm. i gave it to her right because that really is like the beginning of yeah that was like my first guitar here yeah for sure but i'm with you in general in general you should buy great shit and you should not be afraid to go beat it up and take it out and mm-hmm. play it because your whole life will pass you by and then you're like shit i never played that cool guitar that yeah. i loved yeah for sure yeah that, i i see no point in you know unless something has some kind of you know fragility to it like yeah, this if this if something happens to this thing it's like immediately gets deep i don't know like but as far as it's like well-made good guitars gibson fender whatever i can take them on the road and play them i mean yeah totally. that's my that, that's my thought <laughs> um justine jackson says what's the weirdest venue you've ever played well that meow wolf that we just played is right up there that definitely is in the problem if i could make a top five that would be in there for sure like, unless we're talking, like, crazy DIY, like, shit 20 years ago when you're playing, like, a Pizza Hut. Yeah, totally. Or I did the, um, what do they call it? The NACA circuit? What the fuck did they call that? Mm. It's some circuit that a lot of artists do because it pays well. Yeah. And it, damn it, what's it called? I think it's called NACA. Okay. Anyway, I, I did it, like, five times because, I've again, I've played with a million different artists. And, but what they do is they basically support your a tour, I'm using air quotes here, mm-hmm. where you go to like high school and college cafeterias. Oh, okay. And you play during the day for, for unsuspecting students who aren't <laughs> happy you're there. Probably. <laughs> like they're not fans. They, right. You sold no tickets. Yeah. But what it is is it's this, this organization that basically supports like the arts and live music. And you learn a lot in those gigs because they're so horrible that you either it either weeds out the weak or it builds this toughness in you mm-hmm. because these shows are so horrible. Yeah. And occasionally you'd have some kids that are interested and maybe you could sell a record. But for the most part, they're sitting far away from you, looking at you weird, and you're just getting through it so you can get paid and get out of there. Yeah. And at that age, let's say you're doing that in your early to mid twenties, if you're yeah, a seven that was. Yeah, and if you're a seventeen year old high school kid, that's a massive gap in age. Those are these are who are these old guys coming to my school and playing these songs? Um, it is. And Meow Wolf, though, which is the weirdest one I've probably ever played professionally, was in, uh, where was that? Santa Fe. Santa Fe. There's there's other ones, but it was basically like a trippy um, Tim Burton-esque uh, art installation slash museum. Yeah. 
with a bunch of strange colors and it was very psychedelic very much but the so. show the show ended up being a lot of fun mm-hmm. yeah for sure yeah i i felt like uh the the, the almost backdrop uh, to what we were playing in front of because we didn't have our backdrop felt like the when you go by the it's a small world ride or something at disneyland it was it was real trippy you know but that yeah that definitely takes the cake on this tour it was weirdest venue for sure all right chris Ernst says are you allowed to put on the bus inquiring minds want to know it's possible uh, well, we did a whole episode with our bus driver, Ringo. I recommend listening to that because we do a whole talk about whether or not you can poop on the bus. Uh, you can't have 10 people pooping right. every day on a bus, but you can poop there in an emergency. You can. It's just discouraged. It's discouraged for sure. Uh, Nikki wants to know, what's your go-to songs for sound check? Well, we sound check with the same songs every day. We sound check with a cover that we do by Miley Cyrus called Bad Karma. Then we go into Vaseline. We try to play a handful of rocking songs for our front of house engineer mm-hmm. so that he can dial in the room when we're rocking we'll sometimes play water days because that's the hit single we'll sometimes play don't cry because it's the first song we start with mm-hmm. then we'll if morgan's not there we'll switch to i'll play her acoustic and we basically do this thing that we landed on it's the song those shoes by the eagles but it's sung like a ryan adams Graham parsons song right yeah um, if Morgan is there, we'll do a song called Alanis because she plays a harmonica solo at the end. And that way we can she can get the vocals for the rock and stuff, plus the harmonica. And then we'll do a song called Matches and Metaphors on the acoustic. Right. If we have to do more than that, I get bored as fuck and I'll just start trying to play covers. Well, listen, but, we, we did start playing kind of an Americana version of Lick It Up by Kiss, too. Lick It Up, an Americana version of Vaseline. Like, mm-hmm. I'll do anything to not play the same songs that I have to play for my job that night. <laughs> exactly. And I I want to get off the stage as soon as possible. Yeah, but so, our, I think our go-to is uh, for the last two years has been STP for, for as far as, like, the no-brainer. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Katrina, or sorry, Katarina wants to know, what member of Metallica would be your ideal tour buddy? My gut, it, uh, off the top of my head, is going to be Rob because I know he likes surfing and skating stuff like that. So I feel like I could be on the road with Rob, and be like, "Hey man, let's hit the skate park," and he would be interested in some outdoorsy stuff that I that I like. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna. I think mine would probably be Kirk because we could watch films together. We could talk about movies and maybe go looking for records. I guess uh, yeah. James might be a good tour buddy because he's probably exactly like me, and you never see him. Mm, that's true. That's true. The best friend is the one you never see. <laughs> exactly. Bobby and Ann wants to know, how did you decide your, uh, your covers for this tour? Uh, Morgan decided them. Yeah. Morgan will come to me and say, hey, I want to do a mashup of these songs or whatever. I'll get in, I'll get in, you know, side the songs and I will create an arrangement that I will cut together and piece together and send to the band. We'll learn it and we'll play it. But she's, right. she, you know, we're going to play whatever song she wants to play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If she, if she has the idea... Clint makes it happen, and we all learn it and go from there. Uh, Master of Puns wants to know, what's the best and worst thing you've eaten on the road? Hmm. Um, geez, worst? I don't know. Probably from some shady-ass truck stop in the middle of nowhere. Um, I mean, I've well, def- in the past, yeah. I've definitely eaten like the one-day-old extra-crispy corn dog in- on the roller or whatever, <laughs> you know? Oh, I did that. Yeah, I have a famous story about that, but we'll have to skip that for now. Right. Um, what advice would you give aspiring musicians on what to avoid on tour? Ooh, what to avoid on tour? I, I, excess partying is probably the number one thing. It's just going to burn you out and eventually kill you. This has been a dare ad from Elder Podcast. <laughs> uh, just I mean, say no to drugs. You want to get down to the know, real dude, business. Avoid, avoid whatever keeps you from being the best version of yourself. Yeah, there you if go. If you can be the best version of yourself and do drugs, then do whatever the fuck you want. Just, That's you know true. what I mean? That's true. 
hurt no one and, and fuck off. Just leave me out of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jason Pointon says, do you guys ever get sick of each other? Yes. Sick of each other. Yes, everybody does. That's a common thing. Everybody gets sick of everybody. You get no private time, even in your bunk, like Clint said earlier. Uh, that's just how it is. No, no, no uh, easier way to say it. Bruno, what are some unspoken do's and don'ts practices on or behaviors for having a good tour? Uh, I mean, I think Clint's advice earlier is, is a, a good do is just to be the best person, be the best, do what you have to do to be the best person you can be on tour, the best version of yourself for your job, um, and that will be a good thing. Um, don'ts, um, don't, don't not do that. <laughs> well, just don't be too selfish. Just yeah. consider that you're you're living in a really tiny space with a bunch of people that you're, you know, you can create an environment with your mood that can affect everyone around you. Right. Be courteous, clean up after yourself, be quiet in the bunk alley, don't shit on the bus, don't bring a bunch of strangers around the bus or the green room. Mm-hmm. Um, don't be a drunk asshole. Right. Those are some things. Yeah, those are just a few. James McPherson, uh, do you still get excited to get go on the road as you did 20 years ago, or is it less exciting now and more like a job? We kind of talked about that earlier. It's both. Yeah, there there's an excitement I think at the beginning of every tour because it's it, especially like specifically this tour it's like damn it like shows are sold out bigger venues two nights in places like this is going to be fucking awesome. But you know, like any job when you're doing the same thing every single night, you know, after a while like it, you know, it it definitely feels more like more like a job. And it is a job at the end of the day. Well, that's what it is. It is yeah. our job. And you know, I I kind of wrote like a little call to arms before we left to the band. Where I was like, look, you know, like we play music and we're lucky and it's awesome, but mm-hmm. it is our job. Yeah. It, it's not, it's like, we're not out there to have fun or, or live some kid fantasy. We can do that, mm-hmm. but that's the, the number one is do your fucking job. Right. Yeah. And the best of them, what the best of them do is they make their job look like a magic trick. Yes. Like I remember, I remember one of the things Rodney was frustrated with about, I think with himself, his own career, it got channeled into frustration with the band was we, we all went to a Springsteen show and he kind of pointed at Bruce and he's like, why can't we do that? And he just didn't understand that Bruce is doing a magic trick. Mm-hmm. Bruce makes an entire three-hour show feel completely spontaneous. Yeah, for sure. But I know the Springsteen camp. I know people who work for him mm-hmm. and it's highly rehearsed. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's meticulous for sure. And it has to be to function at that level. Yeah. And so, the and basically what that means is they treat it like a fucking job. Is it an awesome job? Yeah. Is it a job that most people dream of? Yeah. Is it is it better than um, you can name thirty jobs that it's better than? Yeah. yeah. But it is still a job. It's still a job for sure. And if and if you don't look at it that way, I don't have much in common with you. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, Chris Rosales says, "What's the scariest thing you've seen while on the road?" Um, for me, it was uh, well, we experienced losing a trailer on this tour in Montana. That was kind of scary, but it reminded me of also in Montana, my very first tour. Uh, my field of vision was in the passenger seat riding shotgun and our other guy in our band going off the road, can't get back on the road and going 60 miles an hour and sliding sideways and flipping a van over. That's probably my scariest moment on tour. Well, I'm not going to top that. So good job. <laughs> good answer. Luke MC, are you connecting with the audience in a unique, in, in a unique way at each stop or just going through the motions uh, where every place is the same? Uh, examples turn the page. Part one of that question, um, it kind of harkens back to that it's a job. You know, I mean, it, it is fun to play music. It is great to get up there with your friends and make people smile and sing along to all these things. But, you know, it is it is a job, you know. Like, um, I guess if at a certain point you are going through the motions where you're, where you're just like, 
like you've already made up your mind, like I, I'm done with this or whatever, then maybe that's a little different. But, um, but yeah, it is a, it is a balance of connecting with the audience. And that is part of the job too, is to connect with the audience and to make them feel special and make them have a good time and stuff like that. Well, and it's not one or the other. There may be a song where I'm like, maybe it's not my favorite song. Maybe I'm thinking about something. Maybe my guitar is giving me problems and I'm not really connected with the audience. But then the next song, I might lock eyes with somebody or have share a smile with somebody or see mm-hmm. a kid that's having fun. It just depends. And then there are definitely there are definitely nights when we get back to the green room and we're like, this crowd was awesome. Yeah, totally. There are nights when we go to the green room and we say, this crowd was weird. I I, I can't explain it. <laughs> it's yeah. I wasn't in the crowd. I was just working. So there's definitely crowds that I feel more engaged with, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And then he asked, what you, you know, favorite way to engage, um, connect with an audience, eye contact, listen to, the, to their shouts or chatter. How meaningful is that for you as a performer? Um, well, like, like Clint was saying, we'll get backstage and we'll be like, man, that crowd was fucking awesome. Like, that does, like, the energy from a crowd does help people like us um, perform better or perform differently or, or maybe help us get more excited. Uh, um, a, a, a dead crowd can just, will, will kill, can kill a show really quick. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we go off stage and we're like, that crowd was weird, you know? Like, yeah. Sometimes the energy is just weird. I mean, I'm sure there are some times that we go off stage and the crowd's like, oh, Morgan was weird tonight or the guitar player was weird. These are, we're all living, you know, human beings and mm-hmm. like living bodies that are affected every day by whatever's going on and what's really cool about a show is that you cram all of us all in a room together and you know it's going to be whatever it's going to be that day yeah. which is interesting to me mm-hmm. sometimes the 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 weird crowds are more interesting because it's it's just interesting to think about what's going on with everybody is yeah then you is the sound weird was the opener weird is you know sometimes it can be as simple as is there a bar in the venue mm-hmm. is it, if it's a dry venue versus a venue that sells alcohol that's going to change the chemistry of the room it will for sure and i think the part of like it i think the part of our experience of us been doing it for so long is i just have so much muscle for like gauging a room and like okay well this is interesting yeah i fell off the stage the other night and uh where was that <laughs> that was uh it was in houston, houston yeah you know, like that's the show for me where I fell off the stage. So it's yeah. just, and no one really saw it, which is weird. I definitely did. Like I was maybe like, the people just right in front of me. Yeah. But, uh, or maybe that maybe that was part of the magic trick. Well, I got my ass back up and then ran and jumped off the ego riser. So, you did. So that, so that if anyone did see, they're like, was that part of the show? It was a, it was a great ending. Yeah. I got so scared for you for a second. I was like, oh my God, there's so much that can go wrong right here. Yeah. <laughs> and it didn't. I'm happy you're still with us, Clint. <laughs> Well, hopefully it wouldn't have killed me, but I'm just well, I would hope not. destroy my gear or break, yeah, or or break something. something for sure. All right, we got a couple more questions, and we're going to wrap this up. Jake Cardinal, what is your dream venue to play within reason? Uh, within reason or not, uh, I think I've played a lot of them. Obviously, the Ryman was up there, Red Rocks. When I was young, it was the Whiskey and the Roxy. Played those, you know, Troubadour, things like that. Um, what about you? I want to play MSG. That's a fun one, for sure. So you're just going to say you've played all the great venues. That's your answer? I, I, well, I have played MSG. You know what? Actually, this one is maybe not a crazy popular uh, venue, but I've always wanted to play the Tennessee Theater in Knoxville. There we go. There yeah. we go. There it is. All right. All right, a couple more. Daryl Lewis, uh, does the touring party get per diem? Uh, is it per day or just a show day? How do you guys get paid? Cash, direct deposit? Is a set amount per show per day? Does it depend on the crowds and merch sales? Well, per diem actually means per day. So yes, yes. everyone gets, um, well, you can structure it however you want, but you are allotted a certain amount of money per day to eat. Mm-hmm. And uh, that depends on the touring camp. It's usually anywhere from 20 to 50 bucks, depending on the camp you're in. Right. Everyone in the crew gets it. Even Morgan gets a per diem. Right. 
uh, you can choose to get it deposited on your check, but they'll take taxes out of it. Right. Most most band guys you'll ever talk to or side guys, any touring musician wants cash. But um, but it does not depend on crowd or merch sales. It's an agreed upon yeah. daily rate, and you get it every day. Mm-hmm. Now, what we tend to do is we'll get a week's worth at the top of the week. Yeah, that's what mostly what I've been used to, yeah. So there you go. There it is. Andrew Paul, does Morgan Wade like metal music? Uh, I don't specifically know. I would guess depends on the artist, but prob- Morgan likes everything. She does Morgan's like a lot of stuff. very eclectic. I remember, I think it was the first month or two I was playing with her. She, it, was, it was right around the time she got Sony, and it was, she posted some video. And she was wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt, and there was a bunch of jackass comments like, name three songs or whatever like that. And I and uh, I remember her uh, responding to somebody like, hey, I actually do like Iron Maiden, so <laughs> back the fuck off or something like that. Right. So, sure, she likes Iron Maiden. Last but not least, uh, I thought this would be the funniest one to, the, to end it on. Jack O'Shea, our good buddy, writes, what cities have the best naked fight clubs that you participate in? All of them. I mean, yeah, exactly. If I can participate in one, that means it's 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 the best. Dayton, Ohio. Almost every day I'm in a naked fight club. Yeah, it's true. You know what I mean? And when I'm in the shower, that's fight club time. That's fight club time, yeah. And you know what? It's part of the job. I don't know how to be funny. <laughs> yeah, you said Dayton. Uh, I guess I'll just say Fresno. Fresno has a great, great naked fight club. It's tough to talk about because rule number one in fight club is you don't talk about fight club. Well, yeah, I mean, I can mention the city, but I'm not going to tell you where it's at. I think I think every time I'm intimate with my wife is a naked fight club. <laughs> there you go. And we'll end it there. Thanks for all the questions. I have to leave and go eat lunch. I, I had lunch with my daughter at her school yesterday, and she was so sweet, dude. When we were ending it, she was like, Daddy, will you come again tomorrow? Oh. To which I said, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, I, I didn't say the H word. Right. Hey, I didn't say H-E double hockey We said, said, honey, first I got to talk about naked flight, fight clubs, and then I'll be there. I think by the next episode... We will have a new Metallica album. Uh, we will. And uh, I know one Mr. Paul Moak, who I was texting with last night, he is itching to be on the show again. So we'll make something happen soon, Paul. Uh, we'll see, Paul. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'll you, think about it, you've Paul. Been on, you've been on enough. Yeah, I'm excited. So we'll be talking all things. I mean, I'm guessing from now on, from now until we end, we end the podcast, which who knows when that'll be, it's going to be 72 seasons talk. Yep. So that's exciting. New material, new album. I'm sure everyone's tired of all of our bullshit filler up AMA shit. So we're going to get back to the Metallica stuff here soon. We appreciate everyone who listens, supports the show. Thanks to all the patrons. Thanks to everyone who writes in. If you want to write in, it's metalupyourpodcastshow at gmail.com. We've got a huge backlog of emails. We're going to start getting all those soon. The vinyl, uh, actually, look at this. Let's see it. I have CDs for Going Supernova. They're already here. Oh, the vinyl is yeah. being made. That looks great. I also pressed um, 100 copies of Vampire on CD. Fuck yeah. So we're going to make all these available. I'm going to be rolling out and announcing all the Kickstarter stuff when the records get here. Dude, that's exciting. It's pretty exciting. And you played all the drums on it, I think, except for one song. So it's all exciting stuff. Great things in the future. Everyone take care of yourselves. Take care of families. I've got a school lunch to go to. I'll see you on the flippity-floppity. Peace. Adios. (laughs) If you were... Our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that.